The idea that we're going to have this runaway inflation is gone. The Fed has, has quashed that. Everyone knows that that's not going to happen now unless some other weird bad thing happens like Trump gets elected and goes crazy. I don't know. That's always possible, but not with the current policy regime that we have. And I think that the level of inflation no longer scares me. Welcome to the Curiosity Podcast, where we go deep on a wide variety of technical topics with the smartest leaders in the world. I'm Imad Akun, the co-founder and CEO of Mercury, also an investor in 300 plus companies. And I'm Raj Suri. I'm the co-founder of Lyft and Presto Automation. And today we're talking to Noah Smith, who is a prolific writer on a wide variety of topics. He's an economist. He talks about China. He talks about interest rates. He talks about housing, basically every topic under the sun. Really interesting guy who used to work at Bloomberg and just seems to know a lot about a lot. Emma, what are you interested in talking to Noah about today? The thing I love about Noah is I studied economics. I think you did as well back at school. And Noah just makes it come to life. Like he really applies it to the real world, to current events, and also really makes it easy to understand and relatable rather than this kind of abstract academic subject. Absolutely. Yeah. And with that, we'll welcome Noah. So welcome, Noah, to the Curiosity Podcast. We're really excited to have you here. As we get started here, I think one question that Imad and I both have, just about you, it's like, how are you so prolific? You produce a huge amount of really detailed research, and you kind of make it really accessible for everyone. How do you produce so much? Well, I don't have kids. That helps. <laughs> and I don't really have a real job. So it's not like I'm doing this in my off hours anymore. But to be honest, the real secret is just to know a lot of stuff and be able to apply that stuff to things you see in the news. Also, I mean, writing fast is a thing. Some people write fast, some people don't. I don't edit or revise at all. I just type it and hit send. You know, that cuts off that so helps. much from the, the process. I think a lot of writers are perfectionists who go over their pieces with a fine-tooth comb and make sure that it's, you know, exactly how they want it. But I think this doesn't actually work mm -hmm. because I think that, you know, when you're taking a standardized test and you go back and check your answers, you're more likely to introduce errors than to catch errors. You catch a few errors and you introduce a lot of errors. And so I think that writing is similar. Once you go back and edit, you're out of the frame of mind that you were in when you first wrote something. And so when you go back and edit it, you're sort of mixing multiple frames of mind. I guess for a book, you'd have to do that. But for you know, a blog post, you don't. Being able to just sit there and bang out a blog post is the advantage of blogging. How do you decide what to write about? Now, that is a difficult question. I have a list of topics to write about that are longer than I can possibly write about. So to some degree, it's whatever I see in the news. But it's not because I want to get more subscribers by hopping on trending topics. It's because inevitably I see people saying things I disagree with and need to disagree with them in real time. So that old cartoon about someone has said something wrong in the internet. Yeah. <laughs> that's a very powerful motivator for punditry. Do you worry about being wrong yourself or like stream of conscious and you don't mind too much? No, no, I, I really worry about being wrong. Like, and I am wrong sometimes and, and you know, I don't like that. I want to be right, <laughs> you know? But then if you select topics, the topics that I'm more sure that I'm right about are topics that I've covered a lot before and I've read a lot of the relevant research and blah, blah, blah. And there's not going to be huge amounts of new information to update my priors on. Mm -hmm. There'll be a bit of new information and then, and then I write about it. You know, I change my mind about stuff, obviously. But when I sort of already know a lot about some topic and I see some people saying something that I kind of know is wrong... I'll jump on that pretty quick because the people generally haven't said anything new that make me change my mind. Occasionally, they'll pull out some new piece of information or data or whatever that will. In other words, the topics I select are topics that I happen to know fairly well already. Or at least, even if I don't know fairly well, I at least understand some sort of aspect there that I think is being missed in the discussion. It seems to me like, I mean, you mentioned like one of the keys to being prolific is that you know a lot. And it seems to me like you do know a lot about a lot of different topics and, and you kind of delve pretty deep and you seem to know not just like, you know, the, the high level like fundamentals, but also the research in different areas. Do you actively read research in, in these different areas? Like what do you read to keep yourself as knowledgeable as you are? What I actively read in terms of research is economics. You know, I'll re just read economics papers all the time. Or at least, you know, if not, look through them in detail, I'll at least skim a lot more papers than I even read in detail, but I do read a number in detail. And so I know that pretty well, but then when it comes to research on some 
field where I'm not an expert, then what you have to do is you have to get experts that you trust to point you in the direction of good things. Basically, you're piggybacking on their effort and you're piggybacking on their expertise to select good research to know that they're essentially doing a literature review for you. So for example, in you know climate modeling, a person I would turn to would be Jesse Jenkins. And this is a bit like journalism in that Jesse Jenkins is sort of a source, but Jesse Jenkins will say, here's a paper that does a bunch of modeling and shows the, you know, how much the Inflation Reduction Act will reduce carbon emissions in the United States over the next 20 years or something. That was a paper I blogged about the other day. So, you know, I haven't read a million papers in that literature, but I think I've been correct in selecting Jesse Jenkins to be a curator of that infosphere for me. So I can just go to that paper that he points me to, which happened to be his own paper, but um, I can go to that paper. And, you know, it was a literature review too, so it covered a lot of other papers. But, you know, I can be fairly confident that he's got it right. Now, that doesn't always work, right? Once in a while, you pick someone who has some axe to grind on some part of a specific issue or has some idiosyncratic wrong belief. So you can't be completely undiversified here. You've got to have several experts, and then you have to notice when they disagree. So how to get a bit of expertise in a field that you don't have long academic sort of background in is a difficult thing. And I should probably write like a how-to guide for how to do it. But having been in academia gives you the ability to detect bullshit Mm -hmm. pretty well. And I think that I'm extremely good at detecting bullshit. And so therefore, I'm fairly good at detecting when I found some sources that are just wrong about a lot of stuff, whose fundamental framework for analyzing things is just kind of broken. I could name names, but then, you know, oh, Noah got mean on this podcast. (laughs) Well, that might make good content. We can do that if you want. (laughs) Uh, When you quit Bloomberg in 2021, that was obviously like a big decision. What gave you confidence in doing that? Was it like about the money or was it purely about the freedom to write about what you wanted to write about? It was neither, actually. It was health. In 2021, I started getting chronic vestibular migraines, which make me really dizzy. And it's gotten much less bad now. But for a while, I had to limit the amount of time that I looked at glowing screens. Mm. And that meant that I did not really have the physical ability to do two jobs at once. So I had to choose between Bloomberg and my blog. And I knew I didn't want to give up my blog because it's just sort of central to like what I like to do in life. And by then, you know, I had started it as the side project just to make a bit of cash on the side. And it was doing that. I think at the time I quit Bloomberg, they made about the same amount of money. Interesting. And so I thought, okay, these two things make the same amount of money. Obviously, Bloomberg has more, I don't know, job security in a way, but the blog has more upside. But I wasn't really thinking about the finance of it. I was just thinking, I can't stop blogging. You know, I want to blog. And as long as I can apparently, at least in the short term, support myself doing that, I'll keep doing that instead of Bloomberg. Also, you know, there were a few reasons why Bloomberg's management had changed. David Shipley left, and it had implemented more bureaucratic procedures that made it much harder to get stuff published in real time. And so I was saying, okay, so this is not as great a place to publish stuff because it takes way too long. And with blogging, it's just, I can publish immediately. I just hit the send button, and I can write about whatever I want. I can pull graphs from whatever I want. I can write in voice if I want. I can write whatever length I want. It's just a much, much, much better format. The only thing is that I don't get someone to edit me. But that heavily depends on the quality of the editor. So, you know, it's definitely worth the trade-off. So now does, like, most of your income come from the blog? Like, do you monetize on Substack? Has it grown since you've quit? It has, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I recently passed 10,000 subscribers a couple months ago. Congrats. Wow. Thank you. Congrats. That's paid subscribers. The unpaid is 140-something thousand. You know, I can make as much as a mid-level manager at Google. Uh, (laughs) You know, so. That's pretty good not the worst outcome, you know, for blogging in my pajamas. And it's still increasing, you know, it's still going up. That's not the lid. There'll be more. Yeah, that's the benefit. And it compounds to some extent. I think I can get to 20,000. Oh, yeah, easily. (laughs) Maybe let's flip topics to the favorite economics topic of everyone nowadays, which is inflation and interest rates. What was your thinking after the most recent CPI print? And how do you see things kind of going in the next few months? Basically, all my concerns about inflation are gone. I am no longer concerned about inflation as a thing. I think that we have entered a new economic regime where inflation may be more volatile in the past. You saw, basically, in the 2000s and 2010s, 
inflation wasn't just low, but it was low and steady. Mm -hmm. And so you didn't see it bouncing around much month to month or quarter to quarter or even year to year. Instead, you saw it basically persisting at just about 2%. And we sort of assumed that, that was the law of the universe. Everything was well anchored, blah, 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 blah. That might be over, so we might see bounces. But I think that the idea that we're going to have this runaway inflation is gone. The Fed has, has quashed that. Everyone knows that that's not going to happen now unless some other weird bad thing happens like Trump gets elected and goes crazy. I don't know. That's always possible, but not with the current policy regime that we have. And I think that the level of inflation no longer scares me. So inflation has come down to like three point something percent. And that, that's not that problematic. We talk about, oh, but it has to be 2%. But it's a rare historical case when you get exactly 2%. Usually it bounces around a bit. And having it be like three and a half percent, that's not going to wreck your nation. The only reason you'd be scared of inflation that's that high is if it lasted at that level for years and years and just thus destroyed Fed credibility, which could then allow inflation to accelerate and go to 40,000%, you know, something like that. But 3.5% is not going to hurt a country much. In fact, it has some side benefits too. You know, uh, we erode debt. Mm -hmm. Everyone talks about the big mountains of debt we've built up, blah, blah, blah. Well, inflation is how we got rid of that in the past. And it's already helping to get us rid of that now. So I'm no longer concerned about inflation. I think we've effectively got it beat. That doesn't mean I think we need to slash interest rates right now. But I think that I never think about it. I'm no longer worried. If interest rates are higher than inflation, how are we eroding debt? on the interest rate payments going up? The answer is because debt isn't immediately rolled over. Most of your stock of debt is in long-term fixed nominal interest rate debt. So you take out a 30-year mortgage or something, you have a fixed interest rate on a 30-year mortgage. That interest rate doesn't change when interest rates go up. Mm -hmm. If you got like a 3% mortgage like five years ago, you know, you're still paying 3%. doesn't matter what the Fed does. I mean, you're not going to refi for 7%, are you? I hope. Um, because that would be dumb. <laughs> so you just get relief because your nominal income will go up, but then the fixed nominal interest rate that you're paying on your debt will not go up. And that's true for the U.S. government too. Yeah. At some point it flips, right? Like if interest rates stay at 5% for a few years and then inflation falls, then like the rollover is in the wrong direction. That's right. That's exactly right. So then when inflation falls, then you cut interest rates. So the rollover doesn't hit you like that. Yeah. yeah. In fact, the U.S. has a disincentive to issue new debt at these interest rates, right? That also helps. Absolutely. It really does. Which is why I think the mood has shifted very quickly to kind of pro-austerity. I think yes. you know, the Biden administration has many, many lefty macro people advising it. And those people are very, you know, sort of pro-debt, like pretty much always. But I think that the Biden administration is listening to them a bit less because it knows that interest rates are high right now. They'll come down in a bit this is not the time to be borrowing a ton of money. When do you see the rates going down? You said not immediately. I don't know. I mean, I think if inflation returns to near target and stays there for half a year or something, then you'll see it start to go down. That's just a rough guess, though. I don't really know. You made a really interesting point in a blog post I read recently where you said that Larry Summers got it wrong because he was kind of a proponent of causing unemployment not just him like there was this general feeling that the only way to get inflation under control is by causing a recession and unemployment but somehow it got under control without that do you think that's like a new thing or has that always been the case that you can control inflation just by like setting expectations i think that larry summers just assumed that the things we would have to do to control inflation would naturally cause unemployment i don't think he ever wanted to target unemployment like, yep. you never want to say, let's raise the unemployment rate to this amount. You know, I think that that's not an accurate characterization of what he was saying. I think that instead, he simply said, be prepared for this cost. Mm -hmm. But I think that he was wrong about that because he really underrated the role of forward-looking expectations. Also, he, I think he underrated the impact of oil price declines. I think that positive supply shocks rode to our rescue a little bit, you know, and gave us a boost made it easier to control inflation without raising unemployment. I don't think that was the whole story. I think expectations were there as well. You could see expectations go down in real time. I mean, you can look at the five-year break even. You can see mm -hmm. that market expectations of inflation went down in late 2022 in both the short term and the long term. And so macro data is really hard to parse. You know, it's really hard to get causality. But when you look at just a bunch of studies that try to get at this in different ways, they generally say that after around six months from when you begin tightening, you should start to get some important effects on inflation. I think that's exactly what we got. 
it was late 2022. The Fed started tightening in early 2022. And I think that the people who say that you have to wait two years to see any impact from rate hikes or whatever, that's not supported by the data. Was there something about this cycle where expectations worked so well, like in terms of how quickly that people reacted to expectations or this is just like the world we live in and like expectation setting is enough to control inflation? Well, a couple of things. Number one, there has been some research that indicates that expectations are more important in recent years than they've been in the past. And, you know, we've got the internet now, we've got massively more real-time data on the economy that everyone pays attention to than we had in the 1970s, right? In the 1970s, you saw inflation only through a very sort of slow and diffuse filter. You know, you could read in the Wall Street Journal about Fed moves, but it would take a long time for it to percolate. Now you're being bombarded with inflation conversations 24-7, and statements from the Fed are flying fast and furious, and everybody's talking about it all the time, and you see all the real-time data dashboards and blah, 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 blah. And so that's a good reason to think that expectations may be more powerful now, just because mm -hmm. everyone's paying attention, and they're able to get much more information much faster than before. And so there's at least one paper from the Fed recently that suggests that expectations are more important. I also think that a fundamental reason is that in the current inflation, I think that the Fed had not been tested for a long time. Mm -hmm. So I think that uncertainty about what the Fed was going to do, how it was going to react to actual inflation, was high because inflation hadn't been high since the 80s, right? Early 80s. Inflation hadn't been high in 40 years. Almost everyone who was working then is now retired or dead. You know, mm -hmm. like there's almost zero people who even can remember that. And so I think that for all of people's lives, we had this low inflation, and then suddenly high inflation happens for the first time in people's remembered experience, and they don't really know what the Fed is going to do about that. They don't know if the Fed is going to crack down or if the Fed is just going to sort of allow this. And there was this period of uncertainty, and I think in 2021, I think. And the fact that the Fed waited a little while to get started with this, you know, probably waited six months too long to get started raising rates, you could really see this. If you follow the five-year break-evens and the five-year five-year, Mm -hmm. forwards, the inflation expectations measures. If you follow these things, you saw that at first inflation expectations didn't rise. And then when the Fed, you know, waited and waited and waited to start hiking, you saw inflation expectations start to rise. And this did freak out the Fed because they understand the idea of an expectation spiral. Yeah. You know, where everyone thinks that the Fed's not going to do anything. So everyone else is going to raise prices. So they raise prices preemptively and create a self-fulfilling prophecy. That's how it's supposed to work. And I think that the Fed got very scared of this and started tightening. And I think that if you just look at the expectations, you can see this. You know, I've been to Fed meetings where they constantly talk about the role of expectations. And they talk about watching the exact same measures that I just described. And in addition, they also watch internal, internal survey measures of expectations that they themselves collect that we are not privy to. So I think that they got scared of expectations. I think uncertainty was real. And when they started raising rates, I think after a few months, people realized, okay, the Fed is serious. They're not going to let this go out of control. Yeah. Earlier, you mentioned that you're not worried about inflation. We get that. And so what are you worried about when it comes to you know the economy, you know, U.S. and global? World War III. That is my chief fear right now, is World War III. I was taken aback by Putin's decision to invade Ukraine. That's not going to turn into World War III, primarily because Russia sucked and Putin lost. But I am worried about China. I'm worried because the United States has repeatedly, explicitly said that we will jump in to defend Taiwan. And... That means that China would have a very difficult time invading Taiwan without launching preemptive strikes on American bases to make sure that that does not happen. And if China decides to pull a Pearl Harbor on Okinawa and Guam and our bases in the Philippines, that's World War III. And that means that a number of things happen besides just the risk of nuclear war. What happens is that our investments in China go poof. All the the money that people have invested in China, all the factories they've built and the office branches, research centers or whatnot, just won't be able to be accessed in the event of that conflict. And globalization will receive a massive immediate shock. China is still the workshop of the world and responsible for a very large percent of manufacturing and a very large number of goods. And a lot of that will be cut off. And we saw this happen in World War I. Germany and Britain were each other's top trading partners on the eve of World War I. That sort of debunks the notion that trade prevents war. But mm -hmm. there was this huge shock, and Britain still had the British Empire, and they had to turn to the British Empire to replace some of their trade with Germany, and then they had to ramp up domestic manufacturing a lot. And it was extremely disruptive for their economy. And, you know, it was extremely disruptive for Germany as well. And so 
to see this repeated on a global scale after much deeper supply chain integration than we ever had before World War One would put that shock to shame. And so we're looking at sort of a bigger, badder World War One here in terms of what that would do. You know, Xi Jinping has, has proven himself to be sort of an unwise leader in many uh, cases. You know, his zero COVID policy is bad. He has not handled the real estate bust well. He cracked down on tech companies for two years. And it's not clear why he did that. You know, he's just made a lot of blunders. You know, Belt and Road has really gone belly up under him. You know, he sent out these wolf warrior diplomats to kind of bellow in the international scene, like, we will bury you, like Kaiser Wilhelm or something. Like, what are you doing? And so he's just made mistake after mistake. And I think a lot of Chinese people have lost confidence in him, but because of their system, there's no way to get him out of there until he dies, which, you know, he's going to be in there for 10 more years at least. And so it's easily possible that he will launch World War III because he's stupid. And even if the rest of the people in China sort of know better, and they'll kind of go along with it because once the machine of aggressive expansionist nationalism gets rolling, you can't be the one who's seen to be against that. That's a way to end up in a cell for the rest of your life or dead. And so I really worry about that because the entire fate of global manufacturing supply chains and economic integration lies in the hands of this one dorky bad leader who can't be dislodged. If this was to happen, that would be the first war between two nuclear powers. Is there a reason it would not go nuclear? Do you think they could avoid that? I don't know. I have no idea. I'm not sure anyone really knows. Yeah. Do recent events give you hope? Like, you know, the fact that like China is trying to engage more. They're starting to reverse a lot of the bad policies that they put in place. They're trying to stimulate their economy again. Do those events give you some hope? A little bit. But I think what worries me is that China's economy is now slowing and it doesn't, it looks to be entering a protracted slowdown because of the real estate bust. We think of China's economy in terms of export-oriented manufacturing, but that was true before the Great Recession. But since the Great Recession, it's been increasingly about real estate and to some degree infrastructure, but really just property. And now that's sort of gone. The, you know, I won't call it a Ponzi scheme or pyramid or the other hyperbolic expressions that people use because it was a bit different than that. There were some elements of that. But I think more, it's just that the build-out of real estate has run its course. And that building more is just building stuff that no one's going to buy. And that now that people realize that, it's set expectations for price appreciation on a long-term, flat, or even possibly negative trend, which means that real estate is the driver of the economy is done for now, or basically to the degree it was, it'll never come back. And how China shifts in that model, it's doing the extend and pretend thing very well. Prices haven't really come down because no one's selling. And at the same time, we're starting to see activity in the real economy has really suffered. Youth unemployment, which is a little overmeasured in China, they count a few too many people as unemployed, but official youth unemployment has gone from like 8% to over 20%. And that's using the same measure that they consistently use. That's their internal measure. And so that's bad. And I worry that people might think that a shift to massive war production of the kind we did during World War II would be the way to get out of that. The real way to get out of that is just to make a healthcare system, right? You just say, we're going to make a world-class healthcare system and put everyone to work there. That's sort of what America did to solve our employment problems. You know, we just put everyone to work in healthcare and China could do that too, and they should do that. That is the smart thing to do here. I'm afraid they'll do the stupid thing, which is to think, okay, the United States got out of the Great Depression by going to World War II and having everyone working in munitions factories or in the army itself let's do the same thing. But now the production advantage is on our side. So China is in the position that America was in in World War II where it can just outproduce everybody else. And so we'll win and we just have to put everyone to work on the war effort. And so I'm worried about that. I'm also worried that in the 2000s and 2010s, China avoided making aggressive moves because its economic growth was so fast that it didn't want to jeopardize that. Mm-hmm. It's sort of like the old economics problem of when to cut a forest, right? When your growth rate slows, then you cut the forest down. And so I'm, I'm worried that China's growth rate has slowed so much that now they think, well, okay, we always sort of wanted to go to war, or at least some of us did. The people now in power always wanted to go to war. And so now we'll do it because we don't have any more growth to look forward to. So I'm worried about that. And the third thing I'm worried about is the danger zone hypothesis by Hal Brands and some other people, which is basically that if China thinks that aging is going to make it decline in terms of relative power and relative strength, you know, relative to its rivals, especially India, in the future, 
then it wants to do as much as it can before that decline happens. And so it could be scared into moving now. And if you see Germany in World War I, part of their reason for going to war was that they were afraid of Russian industrialization. They were afraid that was going to overtake them, reduce their power. And so they had to beat France and knock out France. That was their idea before Russia gets totally in gear with industrialization, or otherwise they'd have no chance of resisting the Franco-Russian alliance. And that was a big part of their calculation. I don't think aging is going to like bring down the Chinese economy. I think that the impact of that is overstated. But I think that they don't know that. And they could be scared that it will. Everyone talks about it all the time. It is a pretty stark aging challenge they're facing. So I think that, you know, Hal Brands and some other people have suggested they could get scared of that and then launch a war because they think they only have a shrinking window of time. Those are the fears I have. I'm encouraged by the fact that China has been a bit more willing to talk recently. And I think watching Putin sort of fail in Ukraine has had a salutary effect there. Mm -hmm. And that was one of the most important reasons to support Ukraine is that it warns China off from trying something similar. But I don't think they've been warned off completely. And I think they still have this idea that it's go time. The winds are blowing from the east or whatever Xi Jinping said in that speech back in 2020, I think. You know, whatever boomer metaphor that he uses to understand the world. And um, <laughs> the winds are blowing from the east. Man, shut up. Anyway. Uh, <laughs> I'm guessing you're not traveling to China anytime soon. <laughs> no. <laughs> Not until he's out. <laughs> if they couldn't conduct easy passage through the sea lanes, wouldn't there be an issue that their export economy would come to a halt, their ability to import fuel would come to a halt? Like, how would they be able to maintain a war for very long? That's a great question. So one of the things that America could do in World War II is that we had all the natural resources we needed to produce everything at home for the war effort. China does not. They don't have oil which is one reason they're switching to electric cars so quickly. There's a number of critical minerals that they don't produce domestically, even though they do the processing of those minerals domestically. They're still buying them from South Africa and Latin America and Australia or wherever. You know, and those flow through the Strait of Malacca and around the little tiny little Straits of Indonesia and all that stuff. And the United States might be able to blockade them and India might be able to blockade them, although who knows if they would want to in a Taiwan conflict. And Japan might be able to help as well to some degree. And so that is a worry that I'm sure keeps Chinese planners up at night. We might be able to just starve them of the resources they need for their massive production machine because they don't have the resources at home. And those resources they do at home, they're actually depleting as fast as possible. So China is digging up and burning every single bit of coal it can possibly consume. Well, guess what that means? That means that if they go to war, they won't be able to do what Germany did in World War II, which is to use coal gasification to replace lost oil supply. Hmm. So the Fischer-Topsch process turned coal into something that works like petroleum. And it's not quite as good. It's a little more expensive, but you can do it. And China had probably the biggest world's reserves of coal outside of the United States, or maybe even more. And so they had that. But the problem is they've just been, if you look at the charts on how much coal China's been burning, it's just titanic. And so they burned all their easily available coal already. They burned all their anthracite. They burned all their, much of their like easily accessible surface coal. And so now it's going to just get more and more expensive to produce that coal, lower and lower quality, blah, blah, blah. So that might make it harder for them to sustain a long war effort. What do you think is the right U.S. strategy when it comes to China at this point? You know, we've tried the engagement thing for 40 plus years. I think that is over. But what is the new strategy going to be and what do you think it should be? Well, it's obviously going to be containment. I mean, you can really do three things. You can engage, you can contain, you can fight. That's it. I mean, I guess you can also ignore, but we're not going to do that. Of those, I don't think we're going to launch attacks, and I don't think we're going to ignore them, and I don't think we're going to continue our policy of just mindless, like, China good sort of engagement that we had up through Obama. I think instead what we'll do is some sort of containment. Now, that's not going to necessarily look exactly like it did with the Soviet Union, because China is a very different country, and it's a very different world. So just directly saying, well, we're not going to contain them the way we did the Soviet Union. Well, yeah, that's right. We're not. But containment doesn't look the same from Cold War to Cold War. Instead, export controls are part of it. And other things like CFIUS, where we try to block them stealing our technology. Building a bunch of alliances in Asia is obviously going to be a really important. Building defensive capability on the islands in Asia will prevent China from making offensive military moves. And then using industrial policy to encourage things like friendshoring, right? Where we move stuff like Apple's moving production from like China to India. And we're moving some semiconductor product production to Japan. In addition to, of course, reshoring, where everyone wants to say, oh, we're look, we're building all these factories in America. Well, great. But also, we're going to friendshore stuff so that 
we get it out of China so that we're not at risk in that way. And I think that's an important part of containment as well, because it means China can't kind of weaponize that interdependence as much and say, well, hey, if you guys oppose our takeover of Taiwan, where are you going to get all your stuff? You can't fight your factory. Well, so we make them a bit less of our factory. So I think that that's what it's going to look like. It's going to look like economic containment. And I think it's going to look like, you know, a military build up and build out of alliances. In fact, it's not just the United States either. You can already see the countries of Asia engaging in their own military alliances. So you see Vietnam rushing to make alliances with a bunch of countries in the region, or quasi-alliances, right? You see Vietnam hedging its bets, not just depending on the United States, although they're becoming more friendly with us too. You see Indonesia doing the same. And even Malaysia to some degree, even though they've historically been pretty pro-China. And so you see all these things happening, and, and I think that it adds up to containment. Do you think India would be a reliable ally for the U.S.? They obviously weren't super reliable with the Russian sanctions. Well, sure. First of all, the reason they weren't reliable with Russian sanctions is because India was a long-time ally of Russia. <laughs> you know, India was very friendly with the Soviet Union, of which Ukraine was a part. We shouldn't forget that. But Russia was India's protector against both China and a United States-supported Pakistan. So against China and Pakistan, India's two main you know, enemies in the region that it fought wars with during the Cold War, Soviet Union was the big sort of protector. And that's gone. You know, like not only is... Putin's Russia much, 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 much weaker than the USSR was in a relative sense. But also, you know, India doesn't necessarily need that kind of protection. There's, Putin's not going to protect India against China. That's just not going to happen. And so I think that the rationale for that alliance is fading. Also, buying military equipment from Russia isn't going to work as well now. So, so I think that those reasons are fading. India has always conducted a very independent foreign policy. They're a bit like France in that way. France is our ally, they are not always the most dependable ally, and they mm -hmm. criticize us a lot and are always trying to do things that assert their independence because it's very important to sort of how they see them, themselves as a nation. And I see India being the same way, uh, giant France <laughs> in terms of diplomacy. I think whether or not it would partner with the United States in an actual conflict over China depends on what the conflict is about. If it's Taiwan, I say probably not, but there is a possibility that China could simply attack India because... China and India have come to blows. In 2020, there was that border incident. Mm -hmm. And yeah. India was able to sort of prevail through intelligence sharing with the United States. You know, the United States said, oh, here's where the Chinese troops are. Do with that what you will. And he's like, okay, we'll ambush them. And so they did and sort of won that engagement. You know, I shouldn't laugh because people died and it was bloody and bad. But that was what happened. And so I think that it really depends, you know, if China sort of tries to do what Japan did in the 1930s and 40s, which was to stage this general breakout where China just attacks everywhere at once and decides to become the suzerain of, of Asia, India's in that, right? India will mm -hmm. be in that because China's their main threat. And they know that if the United States goes away from the region, then India will sort of be at China's mercy. Over a specific conflict over Taiwan, I think India probably will not get involved directly, although it could be wrong. Who knows? But I think it's unlikely. They don't have the historic ties with Taiwan. It's not part of the strategic interests. That area isn't so important to their maritime trade. And they're not used to this sort of like this policy of joining international alliances to like oppose rising powers, which we call offshore balancing. India is really not used to that. And so I think that they wouldn't necessarily join. That said, partnership with India makes sense for a lot of reasons that have nothing to do with a direct conflict over Taiwan. The more manufacturing we move to India, the more secure we are against Chinese economic cutoffs. And the more power India has, the more it gets built up in the region, the less freedom of action China has to be able to just do what it wants wherever because it, it'll know that getting embroiled in the Taiwan conflict will weaken it relative to India. And so these are all sort of important considerations when making those alliances, I think. Why doesn't the U.S. have a policy of trying to attract as many um, talented Chinese folks as we can, given that people are disillusioned with the government there? That's a really great question. There's essentially two reasons. Number one, everybody's worried about spying. Number two, xenophobia. America, over the grand sweep of our history, is a very pro-immigration country. And yet we've had eruptions of xenophobia multiple times. We had one in the 1950s, which probably would have resulted in made policy to cut off Irish immigration had the Civil War not come along and done that anyway and disrupted those, those efforts. We had a giant eruption of xenophobia in the 1910s and early 20s, which resulted in a restrictive immigration law that, you know, restricted immigration for 40 years. And well, we had a small one in the 90s, which resulted in denial of welfare services to a lot of people on visas and things like that. 
1996. We've had these spasms of anti-immigrant sentiment that happen, and I think Trump was obviously a big one, right? And Trump just constantly hammered on this idea that immigration is invasion, the white population is being replaced, it's a plot to replace us, and or the more sanitized version of that is the Democrats are importing votes for themselves, which I'm sure the Democrats were pretty happy to do that anyway. Like, they, they're not above a little vote importing, but that's that's always been true throughout our whole history. So, But xenophobia really erupted. And it was this idea that, like, the white population of America is being replaced that Tucker Carlson was pushing and, you know, sort of people on the, on the far right were pushing that scared a lot of people, combined with scenes of chaos at the southern border, which concerns a whole lot of people, especially annoys Hispanic people living close to that border. So you saw a lot of those people shift toward Trump in 2020. We're coming off that, right? That will end. That will go away. We will reestablish confidence in America's mission to be the nation of immigrants in the city on the hill and blah, blah, blah. It will not probably happen until the end of this decade. You know, we will be dealing with the fallout from that xenophobic backlash at a very inopportune time. That plus concerns over spying. So much spying has been done. And China, unlike Russia, is not very good at suborning our people. Occasionally it can suborn one of our people but it's just much worse at it. So what you see is Chinese employees in U.S. companies taking stuff. That's been the pattern. It's especially a pattern in startups. You say, oh, great, Chinese engineer. They just take all your stuff. And then, you know, a week later, a startlingly similar competitor startup appears in China with the exact same tech. And <laughs> the stuff your engineer just nabbed when they left. And so that kind of stuff is part of it. I worked at Stony Brook Business School for a couple of years, and... Most of our students were Chinese. I loved that. I thought that was great. And every faculty meeting, a ton of professors would bring this up as a big problem that we needed to fix. But you see polls that show, you know, America extremely pro-immigration. But then when you turn the question to like Chinese students at American universities, you saw majority support in like, I don't know, 2020 or something or 2019 for restricting Chinese students at U.S. universities. And even some Democrats were saying this. I was like, what? And so xenophobia isn't just on the right. It's just the right's louder and meaner about it. What is the countervailing forces that stop or slow down xenophobia? Like, how do we reverse that? You said it will reverse itself by the end of the decade. But what is the actual countering force? The countering force is national self-confidence. When America has a strong sense of who it is and a strong sense of its own destiny and that things are going okay, we allow immigration. Hmm. And so you saw that in 1965, the sort of height of post-war liberalism. We liberalized immigration and tossed out the racist immigration restrictions that we had built in 1924. That was at the height of our confidence. You saw in the 90s and early 2000s, the kind of incipient xenophobic backlash was crushed basically by a bunch of people, including Republicans, including George W. Bush, saying, look, immigrants are great. I don't know what you're talking about. Shut up. America's great. America. Immigrants. Yeah. And, that, and people bought that. I bought that. Everyone bought that. Like, if, if you look at the polls, there was a surge of xenophobia in the early 90s that then really crashed in the late 90s and 2000s. We had this economic boom. Everyone thought there's room for everybody. We're building out the suburbs. We're building all these McMansions. You know, ethnoburbs. Everybody, come here and get your McMansion and stuff like that. So economic confidence and sort of national self-confidence was kind of a trough of political unrest. We had 9-11, but it was a time where we didn't have a lot of unrest in American society compared to, you know, the 2010s when we had a lot or the 1920s when we had a lot, the 1970s. So I think that national self-confidence, it's a nebulous thing because it includes economic, social, cultural aspects, political, blah, blah, blah. But I think that's my general answer. We need to become confident in ourselves as a nation again. I think we will, but it's going to take a decade. Is there also economic forces that push towards that in terms of labor shortage like this need to have immigrants to help with that? No. In the long run, if fertility continues to decrease, and then we have, we're encountering severe labor shortages, especially skilled labor, 20 years from now, then yes, we would see that. We saw this with Japan and Europe. And we're about to see it with South Korea, you know, Taiwan, and even China, although they're too big to really do much. But no, I think that labor shortages haven't yet started to bite. And so that that's not going to be a big deal except in specific industries, semiconductors. Yeah. I should have specified overall, there's a few industries. Yeah, I mean, tech startups would probably disagree, or, or like I worked in the restaurant industry, they would probably disagree. But yeah, we've seen You're right. a lot of labor shortage. Yeah. I had a question about fertility. You mentioned fertility was declining. What do you think can be done to reverse that? Has there been any interesting 
or successful cases of fertility declines reversing? There have been a few, only to a modest degree. So the United States had sub-replacement fertility in the 70s, and then our fertility went back above replacement in the uh, 90s and 2000s, and then went back down again. You've seen New Zealand do some reversal. You've seen France have a minor, small reversal. Sweden, you've seen have a small reversal. You've seen Japan increase their fertility a little, a little bit, a little bit, mm-hmm. not like a big reversal. So the short answer is no. We don't know how to solve this problem. And if we do, I'll call you, and then the world will change. You won't need me to call you. You'll see. But the long answer is that we know a few things that work a little bit, and we can do more of those things, but then we don't have a general comprehensive solution to this. And now fertility rates are plummeting in Africa, which was sort of the last holdout of high fertility in the world, which means that by the end of the century, the world is going to start running out of young people Mm. as a whole, not just in particular regions. That'd be a big change for sure. Another question, I mean, I, I know you're very interested in, in like housing, right, in general. You know, you've talked about urban design and you've talked about like the importance of density. Do you think like the high price of housing may also be related to fertility rates and birth rates? Many people associate kids with buying a house. So if buying a house is expensive, they may delay having kids. Do you think there's a relationship there? There is a relationship. We can see it in the data. It doesn't seem that strong of a relationship, but it is there. It is a thing. Right now, the places we're seeing with above-replacement fertility is the triangle of North Carolina, South Carolina, and Tennessee. I don't know that they necessarily have cheaper housing than Texas or build more than Texas, and yet Texas has declining fertility as well, or Texas has, you know, sub-replacement. And so Texas has a ton of, like, immigrants from Mexico who traditionally had higher fertility rates. But, by the way, what people don't know is the big story of plummeting fertility since 2010 in America, or since really since 2008 is Hispanics. It is Hispanic fertility that has fallen off a cliff in America, whereas white and black fertility have declined only like a little bit. Those were already below replacement. And Asian fertility is fairly low too. So white, black, and Asian fertility are all like, you know, 1.7, 1.6-ish. And then Hispanic fertility just went from like basically three to something like one. It's almost pretty much converged with white and black fertility. And that was our ace in the hole. You know, that was our secret sauce. And now we've lost that. Is there a known reason why that happened? Education, absolutely. Massive, massive increase in high school and college completion rates among Hispanic people in America over those years. We attempted to get all the Hispanics educated, and we did. In fact, Hispanic college enrollment rates, which counts community college, but is all sort of college enrollment rates, went above non-Hispanic white rates. So more educated people obviously choose to have less kids. I mean, we've seen that in countries around the world. Is education or also like wealth? I mean, because they're more educated, they also make more money, and they choose to put off having kids. Absolutely. There's changing gender values, too, in there. I don't want to omit that, right? We've also seen this in Mexico. I think that Mexican values, to some degree, are transmitted to Mexican immigrants who come to America, come with low fertility already. They don't have to, like, assimilate before they have low fertility now. You know, they just come with low fertility to start with because Mexican fertility dropped, and that had a lot to do with Mexico getting more rich and also more gender equal. So there's a lot of things going on. This is a throwback to like 30 minutes ago, but you said unemployment in China, youth unemployment had gone up from 8% to 20%. That kind of surprises me because like if you have this kind of demographic problem and there's yes, less young people, I would have thought there'd be more jobs for a smaller set of people. So how are the demographics hurting them if the unemployment rates are going up? The impact of demographics on unemployment is subtle. So if you took an entire country and just doubled it, doubled that country, would you expect none of the new people to have a job? Would you expect wages to crash if you just doubled it? Well, no, you wouldn't because more population doesn't just increase labor supply. It also increases labor demand. Labor demand comes from the demand for goods and services. Demand for goods and services comes from consumption. Consumption comes from people who spend their labor income, right? And it doesn't just work exactly like that because there's a bunch of age effects too. There's like a life cycle peak where in some ages people spend more, in some ages they borrow more, in some ages they consume more, etc. But to a first approximation, increasing your population shouldn't really affect labor supply without also affecting labor demand. And this is true of immigration as well. We just naturally think of immigrants coming in and competing down wages. At the same time, immigrants are spending their money on stuff for everything from doctor's appointments to like school for their kids to new houses. And that creates labor demand for locals, right? For native born people. And so there's labor supply shock and labor demand shock at the same time. And you get 
immigration and more babies kind of produces very similar effects in this way. Immigrants are just babies from elsewhere. And so (laughs) so the effects are similar. In China, I would say youth unemployment is not a structural problem so much as a cyclical problem. That's economics jargon. What that means is it's the real estate bust. Real estate was Mm -hmm. 29% of China's entire economy, and it just fell right off a cliff. Like, demographics are a drop in the bucket compared to that, right? You know, China was really trying to ramp up education. So I think a lot of, like, educated young people, you know, they don't want to go, like, put together shoes in a factory, right? They wanted at least pushing paper at a desk job, maybe doing something more exciting with more upside than that. These people had great expectations and hopes, and they're not necessarily going to just take the same kind of jobs their hardworking, long-suffering parents did in a factory. Now that demand is decreasing because of the real estate bust, demand is decreasing in educated people industries as well. Or, you know, like there's a a company that does in property insurance for the new, you know, property developers and whatever, right? Now that that needs some insurance assessors and maybe you got a degree doing accounting. Now what? You're out of a job. So like there's just tons and tons of, of the Chinese economy that we don't see by analyzing it constantly through this lens of export manufacturing, but that is very important for employment. Yeah. And let me add just a little bit of context on that. You know, my wife is Chinese, so I learned a lot about China oh. and the importance of real estate there because it's actually like a cultural value to own real estate in China. It's like a big thing for them. Like it's a big thing to store your wealth in real estate. It's like almost like a, almost a little bit like a birthright. You know, it's, everyone's going to grow up once they made it, they buy a house. But it, it is a cultural value. Everyone expects to have real estate in China, which is why the boom happened in the first place. Everyone's very proud of the real estate that they own. Yeah, there's historical reasons for this, which I'm sure you could go into and we could go into that. But essentially what you had is this thing where you would have a couple. Together they had four parents and eight grandparents. And all those people's savings would be put into a single apartment for that couple. Mm -hmm. One apartment. You'd get all the life savings. I mean, of course, the old people didn't have that much life savings since they were in the Cultural Revolution or whatever. But then... Whatever they had, plus the parents' savings from like the Jiang Zemin, Hu Jintao era, plus the couple's savings would all be put into one single apartment. And then on top of that, you had a, this big run-up in mortgage debt in the you know, late 2010s. And so every single source of demand you could have for new apartments was put into new apartments. Where is the demand going to come from to provide the price appreciation for those apartments that everyone was expecting? It does not exist. The central government is not going to borrow 200% of GDP and use that to continually buy houses to push the prices of those houses up. You know, the expected price appreciation can't happen. People had already overbid these things. And so even if they don't sell, they know that it's not going to go up anymore. Barring the government borrowing 200% of GDP and using it to buy houses. You know, on second thought, I don't put it past the Chinese government to try some sort of scheme like this because they are that powerful and that nuts. I don't think they will. I hope they don't. But what that means is that the idea that an apartment is your nest egg is out the window now because for your nest egg, you need at the very least capital preservation, preferably capital appreciation. This is where China is more vulnerable than Japan because in Japan, Land could appreciate, but structures always depreciated. No one wanted to live in an old structure, and every 30 years they'd invent new earthquake safety technology and just scrap and build everything in the whole country. And so in Japan, you had real estate in the bubble back in the 80s being used as collateral for businesses, which was a big problem. But what you didn't have was the entire country using it as their savings vehicle. For Japanese people, the big savings vehicle is and always has been bonds. China does not have that. China does not have a bond market strongly connected to, you know, corporations and and the government, blah, blah. China needs a bond market or a stock, I mean, stock market, but stock market's always smaller than bond market, right? Mm -hmm. Like we talk about China doesn't have a functioning stock market. That's why everyone saves in real estate. Well, okay, but look at the size of real estate markets in the United States compared to stock markets. It's bigger. The real place that people save is when they don't use real estate is bonds. And that's where Japanese people save all their money is bonds. And China needs a bond market. But that requires cutting regular people in on a lot more of the proceeds of the enterprises than they're prepared to do, you know, being more egalitarian and less sort of like corrupt than they're willing to do yet. And so, but I think eventually this is what they're going to have to do if they want to restore middle class, the ability for middle class people to save money. And if they don't restore it, well, ask your wife, people are going to get mad. Yeah. 
Absolutely. Really well put. I have a final question before we go. My question is actually out of left field, but it, uh, I was wondering if I should get rabbits for my kids. You seem to be a rabbit expert. How old are your kids? Two and four. No, don't get a rabbit for a kid younger than four. But for young kids, by the way, the rabbit that you want to get is a giant rabbit, a continental giant or a Flemish giant. The continental giant is the largest and cuddliest of all of them. And these rabbits are the size of dogs, and they have a very calm temperament and personality. It's essentially a family dog. You can walk it with a leash like a dog. And in fact, they make friends with dogs. You have one of these? No, no, I don't. So the downside of these is that like a big dog, they have shortened lifespans. So a continental giant rabbit has a life expectancy of seven to eight years. Really more like seven years, honestly, because they were bred to be so large, like Great Danes or St. Bernard's. A normal rabbit has a lifespan of 10 to 12 years. A giant will have a shorter lifespan. So that's the downside. If you don't mind that, then go get a giant rabbit and your kids will have fun hugging it and playing with it. Thank you. Amazing. All right. My question is not as playful as Raj's. One concern that people have for the U.S. economy is commercial real estate, especially all the lending around it and whether a lot of high vacancies and high interest rates kind of making it untenable. Do you think that is an issue? And do you think it would cause a U.S. recession if it like came to fruition? Yes, and probably. Um, I don't know how bad it is, but I'm going to be looking into that soon. I think that that's obviously going to be the weakest sector of the American economy. And of course, real estate. Real estate traditionally is the driver of booms and busts. That's not always true. It wasn't true in the years after the Great Recession because the real estate market had gotten so out of whack that a lot of things were adjusting. But traditionally, they say housing is the business cycle. Now, it's usually residential real estate. Commercial real estate caused a bust in Japan. And so we could have our first commercial real estate caused bust ever now. But yes, it's definitely a thing to think about. And if it did happen, what would happen? Like interest rates would go down again? Like what would be the kind of set of things you would expect to happen? Interest rates will go down. Growth will slow. Unemployment will rise. Yeah. Whoever's in power will lose an election. I see. Well, I guess we're looking forward to the whole article on this that you'll write so we could see the full write-up. I have to look into, you know, how commercial real estate is doing. Like, I don't know off the top of my head what's, you know, what the numbers are like. Really, this is a question of numbers. How much Mm -hmm. commercial real estate might default? Like, how big defaults are we looking at here? Fortunately, the aftermath of the Great Recession and the housing-based financial crisis, you know, there were a lot of new regulations and just a lot of general fear that made banks not really leverage themselves as highly on real estate assets, which is why you've seen so many of the big bank losses in the current interest rate environment come not from real estate, but from bonds. Mm -hmm. You know, bond prices just going down, like that's why Silicon Valley Bank collapsed. And so you've seen the biggest stresses on the system come from bonds, not from real estate, because we got a lot more cautious about real estate after 2008, as we should have. And so that may be our saving grace in terms of the commercial real estate thing, is that these loans probably weren't packaged and sold off as like increasingly Byzantine mountains of CDOs or whatnot, like housing was before the 2008 crisis. We're in a more robust position relative to real estate-related debt in general. Mm -hmm. Could it cause a recession? Yes. Is it going to be like 2008? I would say no, it's not. Yeah, makes sense. This is a super interesting chat, Noah. I feel like we could keep talking for another hour. So (laughs) really appreciate you taking this time. Well, have me back on any time. We can do another. Thanks, Noah. This was amazing. Mm -hmm.